0: We've been in a three-part series, today being the last, that I just called Christian Atheism. It's simple. It's, it, it sounds like this. I believe in God, but I worry a lot. I believe in God, but you better not offend me. I have the right to hold bitterness and unforgiveness. I believe in God, but I'm in charge of my sex life. So I thought I'd end this three-part series with an easy one. I believe in God, but what's mine is mine. I believe in God, but I'm not sure about this generosity, giving, or tithing thing. I believe in God, but my sense of security sure seems to go up and down with my financial condition. So I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, 18, and 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant, It's an unusual section of the Bible where Paul says, command those who are rich. Now that immediately raises the question in my mind, who are they? Who are the rich? How do you identify them? Who does that apply to? And that leads to another question. How do you decide whether or not you're in the rich category? Uh, Here's the way most people decide. We just look at other people. It's a fact. We look at our own income, our own wealth level, And we ask ourselves this question, do I feel rich? Am I in that category? And it's kind of strange, but feeling rich turns out to be very, very elusive. So we say to ourselves, well, if I had that amount, then I'd be rich. Then someday you get that amount, but you still don't feel rich. So Fidelity Research Company did a survey with 1,000 millionaires. They asked them this question, do you feel rich? Here's what was so interesting. People in the survey had an average financial worth of $3.5 million. But over 40% of them said, I don't feel rich. I don't know who's in the rich people category, but it ain't me. In fact, on average, their response was that if you had $7.5 million, you'd be rich. Which sadly means this morning, if you've only got 7000000 bucks, million, you're not rich. Well, guess who thinks having $7.5 million doesn't make you rich? People who have $7.5 million. So I hope you can see there's something going on here that ought to be brought out into the open. You know, I don't feel rich because I always figured, Rick, if you were rich, you'd be content. Then you'd be successful. Then you would be secure. Then you would have enough. But I don't feel content. I don't feel successful. I don't feel secure. I don't have enough, so I guess I must not be rich. And here's what happens. We tend to identify and define our own identities. It's real simple. We all do it by comparing ourselves to other people. We either compare up, look at people doing better than us, or we compare down to people doing less than us. For example, if I want to compare my own morality, who do I compare myself with? People doing better than me, or people doing worse than me? Well, immediately, we want to compare to people doing worse, because I want to feel good about me. But when it comes to my financial life, do you compare up, or you compared down? Inevitably, you will always compare up, looking at people who make more than you. And then we can say, well, they're the rich guys, not me. And that bias kind of serves me well because I get a little benefit from my denial, because as long as I put myself in the not-rich category, I can rationalize my not being very generous. As long as I put myself in the not-rich category, it's okay that I always want more and more and more. And if I'm not in the not-rich category, it's okay for me to be judgmental about those rich people who are probably all materialistic. I'd never be like them because I'm not in that category. So, if we're going to be biblically honest and read the Bible from an honest perspective, we have to start with some financial reality and break the denial bubble about who Paul's talking about. Denial, as you know, is not a river in Egypt. Denial is just blindness to a truthful fact. So, when Paul says, command those who are rich in the things of this world, who's he talking to? Now, listen carefully. Most of you know that over 1 billion people on planet Earth live on a dollar a day or less. Think about that. Another several billion live on $2 a day or less. If we did an interview with those people and they looked at you or they looked at me, what category would they put us in? Pretty darn rich. If you make $24,000 a year, you're in the 90th percentile of wealth. If you earn $80,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wealth in the world. Anybody listening? So if we're going to come out of denial and be biblical about it, people in Bible days, as a general rule, struggle to live from one day to the next. And that today is the lot of billions of people. When Jesus gave us a prayer to pray, He said, "Give us this day our daily bread." Why daily? Because most people struggle from one day to the next. So, to be rich biblically, listen. To be rich biblically is to have significantly more than what you need to make it from one day to the next. And what that means is, is that for most people in this room, let me announce to you today: you are rich. You should look happy, baby. You should write a book, give a seminar. And Paul says, command those who are rich in this present age. That's mostly you and me. So now i got to pay attention. And Paul says, how do you handle that? Don't be arrogant. Even in the early church, they lived in a world where people who had money had power and could be very proud of it. People who had money and could dress right and look right Could be catered to. There was a power, an influence that went with it. And by the way, that's still true in our world system. Now, God says, I want to create an alternative community where that's not the case. It is and it always will be true in the world. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you can be smart as a serpent, harmless as a dove. And you can say, I'll use my influence, my fame, my celebrity, my position, my title, my resources, my money, but I'll use it knowing people will—I'll use it to honor God, to help other people, and I'll create an alternative culture. I know it works in the world. I can't make that stop, but I can use it to the advantage of God, not just for my own fleshly, uh, oh dear, the paparazzi are chasing me again. Well, stupid, don't, be, don't want to be famous then. Ain't nobody going to show up and take your picture even on an iPhone. Okay. So Jesus wants to create an alternative community and a culture where those dynamics don't continue. So listen to James chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Suppose a man comes into your church wearing a gold ring, fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show partial attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, come up front, here's a seat for you, but you say to the poor man, sit there on the floor by my feet, (laughs) have you not discriminated among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Do people in our world respond differently to people that have lots of money versus people who don't have any? Do we respond differently to people who have celebrity versus people who don't have celebrity? It goes on even among preachers. Absolutely it does. You said, I don't want that in my culture. (laughs) Sit on the floor by my feet. Uh, The guy with the gold ring gets a front seat. One of my friends told me a few few months ago, just a couple of months ago, told me about a pastor who opened a a check from a businessman, very successful businessman, and it was incredibly large. And the pastor told the businessman, from now on, I want you to come sit by me in the front. And the businessman said he never went back to the church. God bless that businessman. He said, this idiot wanted to give me front-page billing because of my incredible generosity so that I could sit by this twit who called himself a minister. Now, i got to tell you this, I don't care if you give a dollar. Or You give a million dollars. You don't get a seat by me by how much you give or don't give. If you come by me, I'll greet you, hug you, shake your hand, love you. You sit anywhere you want. I ain't saving your seat unless I've got family invited and somebody that's going to speak. I'll, I'll save them a seat there. But it's not based on race or gold rings or how much money they have or how famous they are. I don't care how famous you are. Go park your car and, and get a seat. Right? Now, one little teaching point. We don't want little children on the front row, but it isn't based on wealth. It's based on they are noisy and disruptive. God did not make little toddlers to sit and listen to me. It won't happen. And it's very disrupting, and Satan's very clever to use precious little children to disrupt your attention, your focus, and actually irritate people. We have child care for that. We have nurseries for that. So when a child is disruptive, mama, take them out. It's, how hard is that? I'm going to take you out. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm going to say, somebody should have took you out. This is important that people hear God's Word and focus, and the enemy will do anything to break your focus. So, we don't want families that walk in to get on a front row with a bunch of children because the children, God bless them, are not made to sit for a long service and be nice and be polite. If you happen to have those children, would you tell us how you did it? We'd love to know. But normally, that's the only reason. People can sit where they want to sit in this church. You come first serve, first, first seat. Nobody saves seat for anybody based on wealth or money or who gives the most money. And I don't know who gives the most money, and I don't care. I just know there's a place where you can you're equal before God, and we we don't care. But I do want you to know the front row is not for a bunch of noisy little children, and that's why. It's not based on race or culture or income. Is that okay? Surely you would say that's a good point, Rick. Every human being has a price tag. Just learn to see it. Bearer of the image of God. Every human being has a little price tag that says, worth the life of Jesus crucified on a cross. That's how important people are. But we live in a world where the price tags are very different. We're not taught to see that, but God teaches from a different perspective. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, he says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Boy, we make quick judgments about people, don't we? Just quick judgment. God says, I look at the heart. Jacob ran the miles back on chariots. He was the schemer. Jacob means cheat, schemer. You wouldn't want to buy a used chariot from him. Okay. And God said, this guy's got a heart for me. His brother didn't. Now, Jacob, God wasn't approving his methods, but God said, this guy's heart's for me. It's going to come out all right. I'm going to get him down the road because he got a good heart. Out of the heart are the issues of life. David committed adultery and murder. God said, he has a perfect heart towards me. Can everybody see it's not about how perfect you are? It's a heart issue. And we look at people, or we look at an action, and we just write them off. God says, i look on the heart. And there are a whole lot of nice people who are mean, nasty, and black in the heart. So God looks at the heart. Well, I can't believe he said that. I'm not ever going to go back there. God looks on the heart. You old witch, you need to grow up and get a life. How do we produce such mean, judgmental people? I do not know. I do not know. I do not know. That just isn't supposed to be true of us, but unfortunately is. So Jesus wanted an alternative community where a poor man and a CEO could walk in and be treated the same. Both get the same honor, the same attention, and the same energy. They could go to a house group, a small group meeting, and although one guy may command a multi-million dollar business, and the other guy draw a $25,000 a year salary, It's Bob and Bill, and it's equal hug and handshake and friendship and love and respect with one another. That's what He wanted. Now, I know in the corporate world, it won't work that way. We know that. That's okay. But in the kingdom, that's how God wants it to work. So, we don't care what you make. We don't care what race you are, whether you were birthed in a married family or from an unmarried family. You were worth the death of God. You're valuable. You're precious to God. And we sit around together, and, and if you're an adult, you can call me Rick. You don't have to say bishop or pastor or reverend, all that nonsense. It's just Brother Rick. How, how's that sound to you? Yeah, well, pastor, I think—just say Rick, would you? Nobody called anybody pastor in the Bible. You got that out of an American culture. You didn't get it out of the Bible. They called them by their first name, Brother Paul, Brother James, called to be an apostle. Nobody was apostle this or bishop this. That's all, again, to inflate the egos of men. Nobody. It was never the Apostle Paul. Brother Paul called to be an apostle. So Brother Paul, brother and friend, job description, called to be an apostle. Nobody would call you Plumber Bill. You would say, that's Brother Bill, and he's a plumber. That's what He does. But we've changed all that. And I will eat a page in the Bible if you can find it any way else. It does not exist. So, please let me. don't get offended at me when I'm dealing with, with what culture did, not what God did. It's a, it's a family. My children don't call me pastor. It's daddy. I go to churches where the kids, and I'm not sure they're taught religiously that that's what they should defer to their daddy. If my kids get up and say, now pastor said… Chrissy would never get up and say that. She'd say, Daddy said. That's relationship. You think Chelsea Clinton or, or uh, Michelle Obama's little kids call it Mr. President? Or it's Daddy. It's Daddy. It's family. I, I, I can't make you change, but I can tell you what you do is not right. And I don't need to hear that. I can be respectful. And if you're, a, if you're a young person, you can say, Brother Rick, that's respectful. That's like, Mr. That's that's, but it's still family. It's, it's, okay. I see dead people, honey. Call E911. <laughs> I'm doing my best, okay. So both get the same honor, the same attention, the same energy. So Jesus is just that way. He's not being polite, it's not a, a behavior thing, it's a heart issue. It's just the way He was. It's what should be inside of us. Dr. Dallas Willard wrote this, quote, Only if we believe with our whole being in the equality of the rich and poor before God, can we walk in their midst as Jesus did, unaffected in our personal relationship by the distinction. So the fact that I should give you the same attention as if I meet you versus somebody else who's more powerful, more influential, and rich— Jesus could talk to everybody, sinners, publicans, pimps, prostitutes, tax collectors, and powerful people the same. He was unaffected, unimpressed by titles or where they lived or the car they drove or how much money they made. He just took people, loved people. So Jesus walked through life, and whether somebody looked really attractive or ugly, whether somebody had a lot of money or no money, big education, no credentials, He just loved people. So Paul says, tell rich people to put their hope in God, because money doesn't love you. Money didn't die on a cross for you. When you die, money isn't going to save you, and money isn't going to follow you very far. Financial reality is it's not even my money, it's God's money. Paul says, remind the rich people that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And people get kind of funky and weird about money because they think it's their money. But Paul says, tell those rich people, that's you and me, don't get arrogant. So, Jesus wanted a community where arrogance and special treatment based on wealth would be abolished. And that means changing the heart on the inside. It's never, ever about dollars. It's about a heart. It's always about heart. Why does God provide joy? He richly provides. It gives Him joy to give, and He wants to have joy in in us receiving from Him. Wow, whoopee, when God does something great. Joy comes when giving is freely exchanged, not when it's manipulated, but when it's just from the heart. I'm, I'm happy to give it. I'm happy to receive it. It's a free exchange. There's no strings attached to it. Sociologist Christian Smith from Notre Dame did a definitive study on giving and Christians. Here's what he published. He published a book called Passing the Plate. Interesting. One of the things he found was most Christians experience chronic guilt about money, particularly giving. And he said, and I'm quoting from his book, we were struck by what seemed in many American Christians as a kind of comfortable guilt. They were aware they were not giving as God wanted them to. Initially, they can say the right stuff, but under the surface, they're guilty. But it's comfortable guilt. They keep that awareness at a low enough level of discomfort so they don't actually have to increase their giving. Just low-level, chronic financial gift, not a good strategy. I heard about a man who had a guilty conscience because he cheated on his income taxes. So he wrote a letter to the IRS saying, i got to come clean. I cheated on my income taxes. I hadn't been able to sleep. So, enclosed is $500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) I don't think guilt will ever produce long-term generosity. Now, think about Christianity. You watch TV occasionally. You've heard other people, if you've been around church long enough. Guilt, manipulation will get an offering. But it won't make you generous. And then what happens is you have to keep doing manipulation and guilt to get an offering, which is about the dumbest thing in the world. And then you get bizarre. Then you start saying, well, Today is the fifth moon of the Niazan and the, and the, the, the Passover of the feast of uh, Shechem Ashoki. And if you'll give today, God's going to break every financial curse off your life, and you're going to reap a thousandfold. Or today's the first moon of the Passover, or the first mean of, the, of tabernacles. And God has shown me that if you'll give this miracle offering today of the fifth Passover, and God's going to do May I tell you, where is your brain? that is a lie. That isn't in Scripture. That's called manipulation in order to get you guilty or greedy to say, I can manipulate God by a day, a moon, uh, or something that happened in history. Nonsense. God just told Israel, tithe, and then just give as you feel compelled in your heart to give. I come out of a Baptist background. I'm a Spirit-filled charismatic believer. But I come out of a Baptist background. And after years in the charismatic movement, I discovered something. Baptists have more money than charismatics. You know why? They have a smaller group of people, but they build colleges. They build educational facilities. They build beautiful facilities and schools and educate because they tithe. They tithe. It's that simple. The lawyers would get up stewardship month. They would give a testimony about tithing from their law firm. Businessmen would. Powerful businessmen would. And as a result, we never had any shortage. We never had a miracle offering day. We never had all that nonsense. We had money to burn. But the charismatics always have to have the blue moon, miracle Sabbath, breakthrough, miracle offering on the th- third moon of the Niazan of the Feast of Tabernacles and God. And, and it's just stupid. But so, so what you can do with guilt— And manipulation is you can get an offering, but you can't make my heart generous. And you'll have to make me guilty all the time or manipulate me to get my money. That's not God's plan. I would rather shut the door, go get a decent job, than ever have to manipulate anybody for one dollar or one dime. I refuse to do it. I will teach generosity, but not manipulation and not fraudulent lie by being a spiritual pimp. I will never do that. Well, that's what it is, and it would shut down if you'd stop following that nonsense. There's no hard secret to, to prosperity. You just put God first. You honor Him first. You give Him the first tenth, and God promises to bless the 90% and make it go farther. And I've been doing this since I was 18 years old, and I've never found God to lie to me one time about it. And I'm just saying, it doesn't get you into heaven, but it'll sure keep you out of poverty, and it'll sure make sure—it'll give you kind of a boldness. And I've observed, I've never seen anybody on the long haul get tripped into a life of generosity by chronic guilt. That will never do it. It takes a personal, internal, Jesus-powered vision of a generous life in the awareness that God provides everything around me, and an eternity is coming in front of me, and the reality of His kingdom being right here and right now. So Paul says, tell those rich people—that's us—command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves. So God's giving us an opportunity to have a redeemed financial life and to incorporate my financial life into His kingdom. Money and possessions are part of our spiritual makeup. That's why they're so important. In the book of Genesis, God creates everything, which means, who does everything belong to? The guy who created it, right? Psalms 24, the earth is the Lord's, any questions? The fullness of it and all that dwell in it. I think God kind of cleans the plate. God says the cattle on a thousand hill, the gold and silver in the hill, it's all mine. So what are you saying it's yours for? I believe in God, but what's mine is mine. Ain't nothing yours. I'm breathing on—I'm I'm living on—I'm renting on an earth I didn't create. I'm breathing air. I have nothing to do. I didn't provide for it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm spending resources God gave me. I slid out of my mother's womb uh, at 10 centimeters, and I didn't get to choose my hair color. I didn't get to choose what capacity my brain would function in. I, I didn't get to choose my gifts. God gave me all of that. So I ought to be the most grateful man on the face of the earth, and you ought to be as well. Everything I have, my potential to earn, my capacity to think, my capacity to reason, my talent, whatever those are, they're God-given. Michael Jackson may have ended in such tragedy and scandal, but that incredible gift and that young man came from God Almighty. He didn't honor God with it, but whatever the deception was or whatever, that talent came from God, and God wanted it to honor him. Elton John may have other issues going on in his life, but that dude got a gift from God, and every now and then, somebody will honor God with their gift. Bono with you 2 very devout public Christian, unashamed of it, and a, and a great person, and charitable and generous in his giving, but they're so rare. But make no mistake about it. No matter who you are, God gave you that skill, that ability. It all came from Him. You didn't get to pick a bit of it. That's what you came with. And we ought to be very grateful, grateful people. Now, watch this. God says, okay, I create everything. And then He creates humans, and He says, now exercise dominion over the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, dominion is a kingdom word. Your dominion is a little sphere in your life where what you say goes. It's where your will rules, and we each have a measure of kingdom around us. You were made in God's image. God has a will. God can reign. So, it's really important as a human being that you have a kingdom, that you have dominion, and that starts first with my body. What's a two-year-old's favorite word? Mine. What's the second favorite word? No. Those are kingdom words. Mine and no. A two-year-old is learning they have a kingdom. It's small, really small, but they do. And it's a good thing we all learn it. God says, here's the world, have dominion. Then God says, I will give you every seed-bearing plant, every fruit-bearing tree. God says, I'm going to give you. It all comes from Him. So if I possess something, it means I have a say and a will over how it gets used. That's a fact. I have a say over my food, over my body over my money, over my stuff, over my car, over my clothes, over my power, over my influence. Anything you have, you have a say over that. So, possession is the extension of your kingdom. Your kingdom starts with your body, but it grows out from there. We were made to reign. We were made to rule and to influence the world for good under the reign of God. That's a good government, not oppressive. And that's why possessions and money are so terribly important to your identity and to your destiny, and they won't go away. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're nothing you should feel guilty about. God says it's right to even have a desire for them. Jesus told them in Matthew, uh, what is it, Luke 6, He says, I know you have need of food and clothing. And- I know you have need of all these things. Put me first, and all these things will be supplied to you. So He's not against you having stuff. He'll provide all the stuff you need. But possession is fundamental. I was made to possess. I was made to reign under the rule and goodness of God in obedience to Him in a way that will enhance the lives and benefit of other people. You were made to create, to possess, and delight in a spirit of generosity and gratitude that will enhance the world under God's loving rule. The problem is sin gets in the picture. Now it makes me want to clutch. Hoard, cling to, and shut God out, become greedy, and deceived. Well, I'm not in the rich category, Rick. You don't have to, I don't have to worry about poor people. I'm not rich. Or here's the biggest deception I hear all the time. You know, I'm all for generosity, Rick. I'd be generous if I had more money. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that incredible lie. Why did Jesus said, if you're not faithful in a little, you'll be ter- horrific with a lot? Jesus said, if you wait till you make a lot to be generous, then life will be good. He never says that. He said, if you're not faithful with a little bit, with 20 bucks, you're not going to be faithful with 20 million. No tele-evangelist said that. Jesus said that. If you are irresponsible—if I buy a car for my kids, a used car to get them started in the drive category, and they neglect it, and they're irresponsible with it, and they get multiple tickets, and they become dangerous— you think I'm going to buy him a new car? And if you wouldn't, you think God's going to give you more when you can't even handle what He gave you, and you're totally irresponsible with it? Things won't get better. They're only going to get worse. So you've got to learn to be faithful and responsible with a little bit. Then God says, now you qualify for more. That's pretty good, pretty good thinking. But thinking that you'll be generous if you make more money won't happen, and I'll prove it in just a moment. This again, the researcher Christian Smith. He said, people who make less than $25,000 a year give on average 4.2% of their income. People who make more than $100,000 a year who have four times as much give only 2.7% of their income away. Now, you think it would go up four times. But making more money means giving goes down. One businessman said, I can't tithe on that much money. That's too much money to give. I thought, well, let me pray for you to make less. How stupid. 10% is 10%. Ten percent is ten percent. Ten dollars, one dollar. Ten cents, one penny. Everybody can do that. There's nothing hard about it. Nothing mer- meritorious about it. It's simple. But this is how people's minds work. If I made more money, then I'd be generous. Nope, if you're not generous now, Jesus, said, you won't be generous later. I give 10% of my income first, then we give above that to special offerings that we have here, guest speakers, or missions, or whatever we want to do, or maybe occasionally just to buy some tires or help somebody going through a tough time. That's part of—that's just called giving. You don't have to do that. That's just as your, your heart wants to do it. And when, so, <laughs> Mark, Mark Earhart in here will slip up to me every night and says, give me a 20. And he goes down and buys a $2 lotto ticket. And I said, Well, where are they win in the lotto? On the south side. Well, get down there to the south side and buy us the ticket. And that's kind of fun. Uh, do I expect to win anything? No. But if he walked in and said, Look, baby, we hit the jackpot, $300 million. I want it. Look at this. Woo! I won't say, Well, I can't afford to tie that. Well, I can't give that much money to, to God. Well, that's too much. The first check I'm going to give is going to be my tithe. It's not. It's part of my system, my routine. It's like, what? But this is how people think. Well, if if you're not giving now, giving you more money means you're just a bigger thief. That's all. It's not going to make you generous. Remember, it's not about dollars. It's about heart. Money won't make you generous. Only God can make you generous. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't have that power to make you generous. The majority of United States Christians said, I don't tithe because I can't afford to give 10% of my income. Boy, let me have your checkbook, and I'll fix that quick, because that is a lie. You are blowing money right and left. Some of you, what you spend on alimony and uh, other things, you you could tithe easy. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not a morally good thing. He said, it's just a better way to live. It'll lead you to more joy. It's not bad to receive either. How many of you ever got anything somebody gave you? That's pretty darn nice, huh? That's a good thing to receive. But he says it's just more blessed to give. I love when we take offerings to pay for vacation Bible school for our community so they can come at no charge, or we pay for backpacks, 1,500 backpacks for underprivileged children. I love to do that. Or Christmas blast coming up, where we give away 1,500 bicycles and gifts to all these children from Child Protective Services, or we give a quarter of a million dollars to the orphanages in Uganda to help the people who can never help us back. And then when we forget about ourselves and help other people, we end up getting helped ourselves. This is part of what Jesus said. Here's an article from a business magazine, Forbes magazine, by Rich Carlgard. It's called, The Irrational Act of Tithing. He says, it's a strange thing. You think if you tithe or give, you're going to end up with less. But he writes about people in the business world who discovered when they start tithing, they're actually having their life enhanced and their business more fruitful. And the Bible jumps all over that. Jesus said, give, it'll be given to you on so many levels. Not just money, love, mercy, compassion, time, servanthood. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. A lot more than you give. And when I give, I begin to experience a spiritual adventure with God, that my God will supply all my needs. I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. If there was a flaw in this system, I'd know it by now, and it just doesn't happen. But if I don't give, I don't go on that adventure. When I give, my joy goes up. God loves a cheerful giver. I love to make someone else happy. My love language, according to my wife, is giving. When I give my worry, when I give, my worry goes down. My joy goes up because I'm trusting God instead of trusting my money. When I give, my fear goes down. One guy in the Forbes article said, quote, I found that when I took the risk of tithing, it made it easier taking risks in other areas of my life, including my career and financial risk. I can remember when Cindy and I in Savannah, Georgia were on a staff, and we were tithers, and we gave above our tithe, and one of our staff pastors was going to start a new church in Asheville, North Carolina from Savannah, Georgia. It came to my mind, preparing this message, and I had all, I'd forgotten about it 30 years ago. And he had a broken-down car with about three children, a wife, and they're going to go to Asheville to start a church that doesn't exist, and, and they're on their own. And I remember thinking, they, that car won't make it to Asheville, North Carolina. It is a wreck. I wonder if we could do anything to help them. And so I got this idea, let's buy them a car. Now don't, I couldn't go down and give a check for a car, but I knew what I could do. I says, you go buy the car, and this after Cindy and I agreed. You go buy the car, give me the coupon book, and it was a coupon book of 36 payments. Remember when you could buy a car for 36 payments? And I says, give us the coupon book, and we kept it every month. In addition to our tithing and giving, we wrote a check for that car. I never thought about it. And he called us one day, several years later, says, stop sending money. The car's paid for. It. You've overpaid us for three months. Well, we didn't miss it and didn't even know it, which proves that it didn't have any control over us. And I, did he ever give us that money back? I, 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 I don't even know. <laughs> Maybe we just said, keep it. It's amazing what you can do when you break it down into small components. And I never felt happier in my life than knowing I did something he couldn't do for himself, and, and nobody would know that. And In fact, I've never, ever mentioned it till just this weekend, if I mentioned it. I even forgot his name. She told me the name. And, and I felt so happy to be able to provide that car for, for his family. And I thought it was such a small thing on my part. Now, remember, I'm 40. I, I'm a lot younger then than now. And I'm thinking, I still felt such happiness with doing that. Owning a new car myself was nice, but buying him one was even better. What a, what a buzz. See, generosity comes out of your heart. Think about, we, we bear the nature and character of God. Peter says we are partakers of His divine nature. Anybody got children that bear your nature? Oh, come on. Oh, uh, my kids do. My wife said, Chef, she's just like you. Well, that's fact, because... That nature goes right into that child right out of our bloodstream. That's true, good or bad. Not a lot of good on my side, good on her side, but you see it. Well if if I've been born again of the Spirit, I've got God's DNA. How could He produce a mean, cranky, stingy person? I, I, I don't understand that. I don't think that's possible. He's generous to the unsaved. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's generous with you, with mercy. How many times have you been to the Lord for any mercy this week? He doesn't say, no, sorry, not enough to cover that. (laughs) Compassion, long-suffering, doing good things for you, daily loading us with blessing. He's just by nature one big gob of cosmic generosity to everybody. And I'm thinking, in mercy, in time, generous. It's not about dollars. It's about your heart. If you ever see what Jesus did for you, That's—you don't need anybody to manipulate you or exploit you. When I give, I get free. Jesus said, nobody can serve two masters. When you start letting go of money, money starts letting go of you. We always talk about why I should trust God. Well, how about this? Why should God trust you with His money? How are you handling His money? And if you get serious about Paul's command, he says, be rich in good deeds, be generous, be willing to share. And there's only two ways to do it as we close. First— systematic. I build it into the structure and system and routine of my life. Second, I just do it when I feel like it, when the mood strikes me, when I think I can do it. Which of those two people actually believes in what they're doing? Take two guys. Both say they believe in exercise. So one does it when he thinks about it, when he has time, when he's in the mood. The other guy builds it into a regularly scheduled time, whether he feels like it or not. Which guy is in better shape? Which one really believes what he said? Easy. The guy who builds it into his life. Two husbands. One kisses his wife the first thing when he comes home, whether he feels like it or not. Other husband only when the mood hits him. Which marriage got more kissing going on? Kissing tends to lead to more kissing. And then to babies and whatever. My point is, what matters in our heart, we build into the routine of our lives period. Paul said, each person, you decide what you give from your heart. That means you be intentional about it. Make a decision. Get serious. Don't be sporadic. People who set an annual goal for their giving end up giving twice as much as people who give when they think or might afford it each week. Nobody tithes or is generous by accident. It doesn't happen. Paul says, tell rich people, that's most of us, be rich in good deeds. Be generous. And that starts with being honest. Look at your checkbook. Don't be foggy about it. Face the facts. If you're married, talk it over with your spouse for crying out loud. Say, how are we doing? With what God's done for us, how, how are we doing? Paul says, decide in your heart what you're going to do. Then build your financial patterns around your giving whether you give online or give by check. And then one more word for rich people. That's us. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves. Who doesn't want that? As a firm foundation for the coming age. That means there is an age that's coming. So that they may take hold of life that is truly life. That means one day you're going to die and then eternity. And when you die, your net worth is going to take a significant hit. Yep. So he says, manage your money in light of that coming age. Because the life that's really life in eternity is always built on generosity and sharing love. Clutching, hoarding, stingy, selfish, grasping has no life in it. And my thoughts are when somebody gets involved with Jesus' church and says, I understand that He gave His life for me. I'm going to take that gift of Jesus. I will take from God what cost Him the life of His sinless, only begotten Son— And I will take it for myself, but I will never give as God asked me to give. I will not obey Him. No matter what, I'm going to hold on to it. I I don't get it. It's so destructive to the human soul. So I'm not about to ever try to exploit or manipulate or guilt. It's just rational thinking that only God can make my heart generous. And boy, when He gets my money, He gets my heart. Jesus said— where your treasure is not where your mouth is where your treasure is that's where your heart will go so i can take my heart where i want it to go with what i treasure and that then what happens is i can become generous with mercy my my personality is not that way by nature but the holy spirit makes it merciful generous try to see the best in people instead of the worst try to believe the best when you hear a bad report Where does that generosity come from? Unconditional acceptance and love of people. It's got to come out of the heart. So what I'm trying to say, this is not about dollar bills. It's about my heart. And if God ever gives you a revelation of how incredibly generous He is every day, then it's easy to become a generous person in life, in time, in talent, and in resources. Paul says, all the riches of God in Christ are ours. And the early church was made up of people who mostly didn't have a lot of money. But they stunned the world with their generosity. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit summonsa.com and click on bookstore.